Let's pray. Gracious Father, we pray that you would free us from our fear as you show us who you are. Amen. Now, all of us have fears. You're lying if you say you're never afraid of anything. Uh, There are the mild phobias and then there are debilitating dreads. So you've got four relatively uh, trivial fears behind me appearing. Uh, You've got the fear of clowns, the fear of spiders, the fear of buttons. That's a real thing, believe it or not, and the fear of heights. Do you know what they're called? Fear of clowns? Coolrophobia. It's a thing, genuinely. Coolrophobia. I think they're eerie, but there we go. Uh, Arachnophobia, fear of spiders. Uh, And then vertigo, the fear of heights. And the fear of buttons, compunophobia. Don't pretend you haven't learned anything today. But at the other end of the scale, you have the universal deep-seated fear of death. And the thing about our deep fears is they reveal our hearts. They show what we care about. I fear the thing that has the power to take away something I value. What I most love, what I most need, well, I fear the things that can rob me of those. So we're afraid of what people think about us, what they might say about us, because I long to be loved and accepted. For most of us, that's the fear that stops us telling other people about Jesus. I'm afraid of flying or of driving or of terrorist attacks because I need to be in control. I love being in control or I love my physical well-being. I'm afraid of health problems, constantly consulting Dr. Google with any symptom. Well, it's because I treasure I love my youth, my beauty, my body. I'm afraid of the future and how I'll provide for myself and my family. Well, because I love comfort and security. They matter to me so much. And beneath it all, of course, we fear death and the judgment our conscience knows is waiting. And yet when you turn to the Bible, the most common command in all of the Bible, do you know this? The number one most common command in the whole scripture, the thing that God says to us more than anything else in the whole Bible Do not be afraid. Do not be afraid. 300 times God says that in the Bible. Do not be afraid. And that should encourage you. If you are someone who is prone to anxiety, if you are someone who knows what it is to have that fear well up in your hearts, you're not a freak or a failure as a Christian. It's clearly such a normal issue for the people of God that God has to say it 300 times in the Bible. It should also encourage you, if God says it, clearly God thinks that he's able to deal with it. Okay, so what is the answer to fear? And how do we deal with it? The deep heart fears. Well, when you think about it, for all the coping strategies and the hypnotherapies, there are really only two ways that we deal with fear. First is we seek to control things. I'm afraid of being poor, so I work really hard and I seek out a well-paid job and I obsess over my finances and I ensure I manage every outgoing and I constantly monitor my pension. Or I'm afraid of what people think of me. So I'm always making sure I do what they like and I keep a steady stream of content on Insta Twitface, whichever is your, presenting the me that I think the world will like and approve of. In other words, we try to be God. We say, there is something I fear, and so I will, I will sort it out. I will address it. I will make it work. And secondly, the other way we handle fear is to look to something else to be God. It's 
really the only options there are. Either I try to be God or I look to something else to be God. And that's where the God of the Bible comes in. The message of the God of the Bible is that he alone is a big enough, a strong enough and a good enough God to free us from our fears. And if we learn to fear him in the right way, revere him, we'll never have to fear anything else. If you learn to fear God, the God of the Bible, you'll never have to fear anything else. And over the next uh, couple of sessions, we'll think about some specific particular fears, like the fear of physical danger, and bizarrely, the fear of missing out. But I think it's actually a more important fear than sometimes we realise. But first, we're going to look less at fear than at God. Because frankly, there is no point in saying, do not be afraid, trust God. If your ideas of God are sort of shallow, thin, pocket-sized and domesticated. Now where I live, um, down the, uh, the World's End estate uh, end of Chelsea, at the bottom of the King's Road, there is a lady I know, I bump into quite regularly, who likes to walk around the streets at night and even walk through the parks at night. Are you mad? She's quite a sort of a little slip of a thing. You're not afraid. But if you ask her, what, are, you, are you not afraid to walk the streets at night? She says, oh no, because I always make sure I walk with my dog. And this is her dog. (laughs) It is a dog de Bordeaux. It would not look out of place in Jurassic Park. It is an absolute monster of a freak thing. It is terrifying. When you've seen her dog, you think, oh, okay. No, I wouldn't be afraid to walk the streets at night with that thing either. But imagine you're having the conversation at the other end of the King's Road, Sloane Square. And she says to somebody, I like to walk the streets at night. And they say, are you not afraid? She says, it's all right, because I always walk with my dog. But if you live at the other end of the King's Road, the only sort of dogs you will have seen would have been these. (laughs) The sort of Bichon Frise, Chihuahua, fluffy little handbag, ankle-biting, rat-on-a-string type affairs. Now, if that's the only dog you've ever really seen, and she says, oh, I'm not afraid to walk the streets at night because I have my dog. Well, you think, what an you're mad. I mean, the thing would have to jump up to bite your ankles. I mean, how does that free you from your fears? What's the point? The point very simply is this. Too often we're not freed of fear because when we think about trusting in God, the image of God we have is the equivalent of the, the well-fed hamster of a dog. A, a pathetic little domesticated carry-in-your-handbag kind of a creature. All of which brings us to Isaiah 40 and a true picture of God. In Isaiah 40, we find God rearing up to his full size. And he's no chihuahua of a dog. He is an awesome. He is a terrifying. He is a wonderful. He is a mighty God. Isaiah 40. Now, Isaiah, um, just to locate us in Isaiah, we're just diving into this one passage. He wrote between 740 and 690 BC, and he wrote to a fearful people. It's a time of political uncertainty. The mighty Assyrian Empire is starting to flex its muscles and and threaten the Israelites from the northeast. And they've uh, devastated already the northern kingdom of Israel, and they've reached the very walls of Jerusalem. And worse still, the prophets are warning, God is going to act in judgment against his people. And that although the Assyrians are going to be turned back, the Babylonians will not, and they will defeat them. And when you get to chapter 40, Isaiah's audience have experienced invasion by the most brutal empire known to mankind at this point. 
They've listened to chilling warnings of God's judgment and have every reason to be afraid. But now, at this point in Isaiah, God finally speaks a word of comfort to his fearful people. Let's just scoot through the the first few uh, verses. So verses 1 to 2, he comforts and he forgives. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and proclaim to her that her hard service has been completed, that her sin has been paid for, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. God says, I comfort you. I forgive you. Verses 3 to 5, he promises that he'll come and he will reveal himself. A voice of one calling, in the wilderness prepare the way for the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be raised up, every mountain and hill made low. The rough ground shall become level, the rugged places are plain and the glory of the Lord will be revealed. And all people will see it together, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. God is going to come to look after his people. Verses 6 to 8, he promises and he delivers. A voice says, cry out. And I said, well, what shall I cry? All people are like grass and all their faithfulness. It's like the flowers of the field. The grass withers, the flowers fall because the breath of the Lord blows on them. Surely the people are grass, the grass withers and the flowers fall. But the word of God endures forever. You can trust me, God says. Verses 9 to 11, he protects and he cares. You who bring good news to Zion, go up on a high mountain. You who bring good news to Jerusalem, lift up your voice with a shout. Lift it up, do not be afraid. Say to the towns of Judah, here is your God. See, the sovereign Lord comes with power and rules with a mighty arm. See, his reward is with him and his recompense accompanies him. He tends his flock like a shepherd. He gathers the lambs in his arms and carries them close to his heart. He gently leads those that have young What wonderful words for a frightened, intimidated, beleaguered people. But actually, it's not enough. They need to hear something else. He's going to go on in chapter 41, if you flick over, 41.14. He'll say, Do not be afraid, you worm, Jacob. Little Israel, do not fear, for I myself will help you. But before they're ready to hear that, before they can hear that rightly, They need to hear something that reassures them that this God who's going to come is a God who can say, don't be afraid. Is a God who's mighty enough to deal with Assyria and exile and sin. That he can back up the words of comfort with works of power. You see, sometimes it's not enough to to speak words of comfort. I often fly, uh, I frequently fly with someone who is a nervous flyer and who doesn't enjoy turbulence. Uh, and I have scars on my arm from the, the strength of the grip at times. What's happening? What's happening? Why is the plane shaking? Are the wings going to fall off? No, 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 we're fine. It's just turbulence. Absolutely fine. And amazingly, my soothing words make no difference. Because I'm not in control of the weather. And I'm not the pilot. I have absolutely no control over the plane. So my words make very little difference. All the soothing words in the world make no difference unless you're confident that they're backed up with power to change things. And Isaiah knows at this point that the people have lost sight of who God is. They've lost sight of what he's like. And so in Isaiah 40, he gives them a vision through God. As I've said, where God rears up to his full height. Where God is revealed in his majestic glory. So we're left in no doubt, oh, there's nothing this God cannot handle. So let's work through um, from 12 onwards. So verse 12 to 17. Who is like our God? Nothing and no one. Verse 12. 
Who has measured the waters in the hollows of his hand, or with the breadth of his hand marked off the heavens? Who's held the dust of the earth in a basket, or weighed the mountains on the scales and the hills in a balance? Just in case you're wondering, the answer to all those questions is God. I love this verse. It's extraordinary. Now think about it. You and I can cup about 100 mils of water in your hands. About 100 mils. God can cup all of the oceans in his hands. That's 1.3 billion cubic kilometres of water in his hands. Now the universe is estimated to be 92 billion light years across. Light travels 5.8 trillion miles in a year. That is further than a toddler can run in an hour. It's, I mean, it is an, a staggering distance. It's further than a child can run when you turn your back. It's just the most extraordinary distance. And God can measure the universe in the span of his hand. Come to God's kitchen, Great British Bake Off style. There's the kitchen scales out, and there's God, and he's the entire mountains of the world, and he's just measuring them on his kitchen scales. Now, the point of this is not literalistic. You know, what did you learn? Well, we learned that God has very big hands. You know, that's, that's not the point. The point is to make our, our heads just swim at the immensity of a God who is not part of this creation. A small God who rules one bit of the world. The God of the sea or the God of the mountains or the God of thunder. Now, here is a God who is outside and beyond and holds the creation in his hands. It's the first step to comparing our fears with our God. Think about who our God is. But he's no unmoved mover, no mighty force. He's also personal. He's a God of supreme wisdom and morality as well as supreme might. So verse 13. Who can fathom the spirit of the Lord or instruct the Lord as his counsellor? Whom did the Lord consult to enlighten him and who taught him the right way? Who was it? that taught him knowledge or showed him the path of understanding? If the answer to every question in verse 12 is God, the answer to every question in verses 13 to 14 is no one. No one taught God right from wrong. No one instructed him, look, here's how you run the universe. There is no objective standard of morality against which we can judge God. He is the standard of morality. He is wisdom. He is the very definition of right and wrong. Well, then Isaiah moves to compare God with the nations, uh, the great terrifying powers of the day. Verse 15. Surely the nations, oh, they're like a drop in a bucket. They're regarded as dust on the scales. He weighs the islands as though they were fine dust. Lebanon is not sufficient for altar fires, nor its animals enough for burnt offerings. Before him, all the nations are as nothing. They're regarded by him as worthless and less than nothing. Now, the kings of Israel are terrified by the threat of Assyria invading from the north. And they're tempted to turn, in the the light of that fear, for political alliances to Egypt or um, over to Damascus. They'll look anywhere for for an alliance to to free them from, from the Assyrian threat. And Isaiah points out, this is just stupid. You're afraid, and so instead of trusting in God, you're putting your trust in NATO and the EU, he says, well, come back to God's house. There are the nations that Israel is, is desperately hoping will help them. And they're a drop in the bucket of water. A fleck of dust that doesn't even register on the kitchen scales. Now, Lebanon was the great seafaring trading nation, the richest, most prosperous nation on the earth at the point. 
But you're saying, look, the wealth and majesty of Lebanon, they're too trifling and insignificant to even be worth a sacrifice to God. It's like saying, all the prophets of Amazon, Apple, Microsoft and Google, well, when the offering plate comes around, it's not even worth putting them in. They're so paltry. The point of verse 17 is not that God doesn't care about his people. Before him all the nations are as nothing. They're regarded as worthless and less than nothing. Verse 11 makes it clear he cares deeply. And chapters 42 to 49 say it's not just his own people he cares for. He cares for the nations too. But the point is, when you're deciding who do I trust in, the God of the Bible or the nations, they're nothing. They're flecks of dust, drops of water. Why would you trust in human power, created, frail humans, when you can trust in God? So he tells them, who is like our God? Look, nothing and no one. And then secondly, with whom will you compare me? God rules the nations. And so in the light of this, to whom will we compare God? Verse 18 to 20. With whom then will you compare God? To what image will you liken him? As for an idol, a metal worker casts it and a goldsmith overlays it with gold and fashions silver chains for it. A person too poor to present such an offering selects wood that will not rot. They look for a skilled worker to set up an idol that will not topple. Now these verses deliberately drip with sarcasm. Isaiah mocks his opponents. So you're not going to worship God. Well, who are you going to worship? A God made of metal or wood. A God so feeble that it takes a skilled craftsman to ensure it doesn't just mm, topple over. It can't even stand up by itself. And you're looking to this to protect you from Assyria. Are you nuts? Now it's easy to miss his point. I don't think he's just laughing at these uh, 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 foolish primitive people uh, making, making carved statues and bowing down. His, his point's actually a bit more subtle than that. I think he's explaining why is it that the second commandment of the Ten Commandments says, do not make any images of God. Why is it that that's the case? Well, here's the point. When you carve or paint an image and say, this is God, you are saying, God is like this. But is he like that? Whatever you carve, whatever you make, whatever you paint, is God really like that? The statue, the idol, it can't see, it can't speak. If you knock it, it falls over. Is God like that? Or to put it another way, answer this. What would you carve, what would you draw to depict the reality of God? Well, no wonder you've been afraid, Israel. You've thought God was so pathetic that you could represent him in a lump of wood. You've forgotten what he's really like. Nothing can represent him. That's the reason for the second commandment. God's not down on creativity and art. He loves it. He is a creator. Art comes from the character of God. But when we try to make an idol, we say God is like this thing. And God is not like anything in the world. You've forgotten what God is like. Verse 21. Do you not know? Have you not heard? Has it not been told you from the beginning? Have you not understood since the earth was founded? And now here's the thing in your mind. What, what, what are you going to carve? What are you going to paint? What are you going to draw that is this? 
He sits enthroned above the circle of the earth and its people are like grasshoppers. He stretches out the heavens like a canopy and spreads them out like a tent to live in. He brings princes to naught and reduces the rulers of this world to nothing. No sooner are they planted, no sooner sown, no sooner do they take root in the ground than he blows on them and they wither. And a whirlwind sweeps them away like chaff. To whom will you compare me, verse 25? Or who is my equal, says the Holy One? Lift up your eyes and look to the heavens. Who created all of these? The one who, verse 22, sits outside the earth because he's the uncreated creator. That is our true God. The one who stretches the sky like a tent above the earth, who rules the rulers of the earth. Nebuchadnezzar, Napoleon, Churchill, Trump. They come and they go, but God rules over all of them. And when their time is up, he blows them off the board and brings on new ones. The greatest, mightiest men and women of human history are no more than chess pieces to God. What on earth on earth could represent him? Now we may not confuse ourselves by thinking God is like a carved statue, but we do carve images of God in our mind with our imaginations. And we need to remember that when we do that, we always carve something different from the reality. We need to come back to what we know, what God has revealed in his unchanging true word and keep informing and correcting our imaginations with an understanding of what the God of the Bible is really like. This, this is where we learn who he is, what he's like and how to think of him. Thirdly, with whom will you compare me? God sustains all of creation. So back to verse 25, the question comes again, to whom will you compare me? Or who is my equal, says the Holy One. Lift up your eyes, look to the heavens. Who created all of these? He who brings out the starry host one by one and calls forth each one of them by name. Because of his great power and mighty strength, not one of them is missing. When he asked, with whom will you compare me in verse 18, he looked at the idols to show they're nothing like God. Now he asks it and looks at God and says, look at who he is. And now, what can you compare the reality of him to? Is there anything, anyone like him? course not. Now Isaiah only had to mention the stars because there was almost no ambient light back then and so his audience could step out at night and look up to the twinkling brilliance of the vast starlit sky at night and their heads would just swim. It's a bit harder for us in London, the only twinkling lights we can see are the planes coming into land at Heathrow at night. But there is another way to just to help us visualise the point. There's a lot, of, a lot of sand on the earth. I mean, you've probably got a couple of flecks of it in your shoe. If you filled up this building, which is very similar in volume to CCM, it's slightly um, lower, but it's wider. If you fill this, this building with sand, imagine that. You would need seven million of these buildings full of sand to contain all the sand in the universe. That's what, uh, uh, all the sand in the world, sorry. And astrophysicists estimate that there are 10,000 stars for every grain of sand. There's a lot of stars. Or if that doesn't work for your imagination, uh, think of a ping-pong ball. If a ping-pong ball represents one star, and you had as many ping-pong balls as stars, you would need to cover the surface of the Earth with those ping-pong balls, and then layer them up all the way out to the International Space Station, 353 miles away. That's how many stars there are. And God knows 
and controls the movement of every single one of them. He knows them by name. Do you know the name of everybody at your church? Your school? Your office? Verse 27, the miserable little voice comes. Why do you complain, Jacob? Why do you say, Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord. My cause is disregarded by my God. God doesn't know or care about little old me. Hang on. God can ensure that not one of seven septillion stars wanders off course outside of his will. I think he's perfectly capable of keeping track of your life. He hardly struggles to keep track of what's going on. The thing is, when life gets hard and we're afraid or overwhelmed, we imagine God has forgotten us. I'm just too insignificant, little old me. He's distracted by world wars and famines and elections and the details of my little life. They're just not on his radar. But the God who moves and knows every single star by name knows you and watches over you. And so Jesus can say, not a hair of your head will fall without God knowing. So where do you turn for strength, for courage, for hope when you're afraid and when problems are greater than the resources you have to deal with them? Verse 28, do you not know? Have you not heard the Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth? He will not grow tired or weary in his understanding no one can fathom. He gives strength to the weary and increases the power of the weak. Even youths grow tired and weary and young men stumble and fall. But those who hope in the Lord will renew their strength. They will soar on wings like eagles. They will run and not grow weary. They will walk and not be faint. The point is that when we turn to the God of the Bible, the God who sustains the stars, the God who creates everything, we tap into his power. We turn from our finite resources and plug into his main power supply. If you uh, serve at Sunday school, and uh, there's been a particularly long service, baptism, preacher's gone on, I know that never happens at Earlsfield, unlike at CCM, but um, imagine it. And uh, you're looking after four-year-olds. Now, they do seem to have the secret of, uh, of relentless energy, of perpetual motion. But even four-year-olds get tired eventually. Even four-year-olds will reach the end and just collapse at some point. But God doesn't. He never gets tired. He never has to sleep. He never just gets emotionally exhausted and just needs to turn off the phone and collapse onto the sofa with a bottle of Chardonnay and Netflix. He, he never has an evening like that. He never finds he just can't face any more decisions or just too tired, or just doesn't know what to do. He's always got the strength, he's always got the resources, and he's always got the wisdom, and he's always got the love that's necessary. And so when we turn to him, we turn to the one who can, and to the one who can enable us. And because he is this kind of God, he will go on to say in chapter 41, verse 14, So do not be afraid, you worm, Jacob. Little Israel, do not fear, for I myself will help you. When this God, when the God of Isaiah 40 is in your corner, what on earth would you be afraid of? Now do you see why it's so important to have an accurate understanding of God? 
Because what we always do is compare. We look to our fears and we look to God and we compare them. And if I have a chihuahua view of God, when I compare him with my fears, I will feel nothing but more fear. And I'll feel guilty for feeling fear as a Christian. But when I look to the reality, the God of Isaiah 40, I will realise I do not need to fear anything else if I fear him, revere him, worship him rightly, because he is awesome and he is glorious. And the thing with fear of God is, it's not like the other things we fear. It's not a terrifying fear because God is consistent and God is good. The the fear of God and the fear of other things is a bit like the difference between the fear of the sun and the fear of the seas. Both are immensely powerful. Both need to be treated with respect. But the sun is consistent. It's predictable. It's dependable. I don't mean the British weather. I mean the sun behind the clouds. That is utterly consistent. And you know if you step out into strong sunshine that you need to put on sunscreen. But the sun will always be as the sun is. It will always shine It will always warm and it will always burn if you're not careful. The sea is very different. The sea is also very powerful, but it's fickle and dangerous and inconsistent. There was that desperately tragic um, account of the coroner's court this week of a little girl walking at Durdle Door in April. She's paddling in in the shallows, perfectly safe. And then a freak wave just came, slammed on top of her, dragged her out, and she was drowned. Came out of nowhere terrible thing for parents God is like the sun not the sea you don't fear him because oh you don't know how he's going to respond and he might just fly off the handle he's not like the Greek gods from classical mythology he is like the sun awesomely powerful perfectly consistent always good I guess the hard thing though for us is that Our fears are visible and tangible. They're right in front of us. Our God is invisible. We can't see him. And so often it doesn't feel like he's helping us and looking after us. And this, I think, is where it helps to turn to the New Testament where Isaiah 40 is quoted. See, it's quoted by both Matthew, Mark and Luke at the beginning of Jesus' ministry. And as as this ordinary-looking man in the Near East, stands up and gets baptised. John the Baptist is quoted as, as, as using Isaiah 40, saying, in this ordinary man, here is almighty God come to serve and save and comfort his people. It's there that you see the power of God. In the pathetic, tragic death of Jesus on the cross, Almighty God's power is hidden in this world. That's why Isaiah challenges them and asks, have you not heard? Because if you judge by what you see in this world, God doesn't look to be up to much. But if you judge by what we know of him in scripture, by what we hear of him in history, then we'll know that he is almighty. And just as surely as Jesus' pathetic, tragic death on the cross proved to be God's almighty power of salvation, So we can be sure that the God who so often seems hidden and inactive and unconcerned about us is almighty and is good and is working for his people. Every ounce of his mighty power is there to save and protect his people. 
So how big is your God? Is he as big as the God of the Bible? Is he still that big when you walk out of these doors? Is he still that big when health problems come, the worrying lump, the persistent pain? Is he still that big when you're trying to pluck up the courage to invite colleagues at work to to a guest event at church? Is he still that big when the children are being bullied and you don't know what to do? Is he still that big when, well, London's on critical alert for terror and you're not sure whether you can get on the tube again? Is he still that big when redundancy talks are happening at work? We'll work these principles out in some of the practicalities of life in the next couple of talks. But for now, God wants us to look up and to see who he is and what he's like. And he wants us to judge not by what we see and feel, but by what we've heard in his word, that he is mighty and that he is good. Let me pray. To whom will you compare me? Or who is my equal? Says the Holy One. Lift up your eyes. Our Father, we pray that we would lift our eyes. We pray that uh, we would repent of the pathetic imaginations that have led us to, to have such a small view of you. And we pray instead you would give us a glorious, a grand, a biblical vision of how mighty, how awesome, how wonderful you are. And we thank you that you, the mighty, awesome God, are also a God who speaks words of comfort and who comes to his people gently in the person of the Lord Jesus to help and to save. Amen.